Another episode of Moped Outlaws, and we are here with our special guest, Deborah. And I just glanced over at your website because your last name Burris Kitchen. Yes, correct. Mm-hmm. All right, and you said that we don't really have to address it, but at the beginning, I'd love to address you are Doctor Deborah Burris Kitchen. Yes. <laughs> so you have a sociology deg- doctorate, correct? That is correct. All right. And um, Mark was just safe porting a little bit before we started, so this is going to be juicy. (laughs) (laughs) It might be a lot less juicy than my safe port implies. (laughs) Oh, come on. Now the audience is going to (laughs) bounce. Good. So where did you get your doctorate? Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Yes, there really is a Kalamazoo. The subject of many a great song, or at least yes. one great song. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So what was that like? What was that experience like for you? Uh, it was grueling. It takes a lot of grit, you know, to to survive that, that type of, that level of um, research and production of, of, a, of a dissertation. But, um, and the classes, you know, leading up to it. But I persevered. So what well, year did you do that in? What when when did you do this? Um, I received my doctorate in 1995, so it's been a while. Yeah, no Jachi PT for you. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. There was barely even computer type help. You know, it was yeah. word processing and right. Yeah, so you know what a card catalog is. I do yeah. know what a card catalog is, <laughs> and I also know what a typewriter looks like. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> um, what was your dissertation on? It was titled um, Sisters in the Hood. And basically what I did was I studied women, um, women of color who had joined gangs in the Fort Wayne, Indiana area. And I noticed that there were all female gangs. And this was during the height of the drug, you know, the drug war and and people selling drugs and, you know, in these drug cartel groups, gangs. So I wanted to understand, you know, what led women to like producing their own gangs. And they basically said that, you know, in a men's gang, you were either sexed in or beat in. You didn't get the share of the profits like the men, you know, members did. So they just started having their own gangs. They're like, if we can sell drugs for the men and, you know, and have to share our profits with them or not get much of the profit at all, why can't we just start our own gangs and make our own money? So it was kind of a women's lib movement within the informal economy. Wow. Yeah. I, um, I'm going to read that. That sounds like a movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the one thing I found out that was really interesting is the women let the other women get out of the gang as soon as they decided they wanted to have children or they were pregnant. It wasn't like the men's where you're connected for life. It was revolving around children. So they were very like, 
you know, cognizant of these women need to get out and protect their children when they, when they get pregnant. I've heard of aspects of gang membership that it's very nurturing, the sense of belonging. And it sounds like from your experience, the women formed gangs were far more nurturing to the individual than the male formed gangs. Yes. From my research, I would say that was, that's a pretty accurate statement. Okay, and from your website, there's you identified heightism as a thing that we have in society. Um, yes. Also, as a woman, you've experienced um, the challenges of that. And right. then you've definitely delved into race and racism. Yes. What were the sparks and seeds of that? Um. My first publication that was not an academic piece was called Short Rage. And basically, I wrote it coming right out of my doctorate degree um, because I was just very frustrated because when I was – all the years I was in school, I just was felt so, like, impressed with my professors and had nothing more than, you know, the utmost respect for who they were and what they knew. And, and I got out there in the world, and I'm like – I was this four foot eight, very young looking person because everybody always thought I was like 10 years younger than what I really was. Um, so I look like I was in my early 20s. I'm just fresh out of doctorate, you know, with a doctorate degree. I'm four foot eight. I'm blonde. And I just didn't feel like at the time, and I don't know if it was more something I internalized or if it was real, but I just felt like I was getting questioned and pushed back and challenged more about the knowledge I was trying to present in the classroom. So it kind of sparked my my interest in in sharing the book Short Rage because I just was having, you know, memories of how I was treated growing up, you know, being as small as I was. You know, stories about being stuffed in the lockers and, you know, patted on the head and picked up and carried around. So yeah. You're not a toy. <laughs> right. <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> so how was the book received? Um, a lot of people who, who bought it thought they were, um, well, not a lot, but there was a small group of people, I should say, that bought it that thought they were being deceived because they thought it was going to be more about heightism. Um, but I talked mostly about how heightism gave me, being vertically challenged, gave me the empathy to feel what it would be like to be discriminated against all other, you know, like by race, by gender, by um, social class. So I kind of put like each chapter kind of covered another group or, or something that was being discriminated against, whether it was economic status or something like that. So some of the people that thought it's just straight, you know, strict, what is it about heightism? Or like, hey, wait a minute, I wasn't expecting to get hit with all this political and social economic stuff. Right. And that must have been challenging for people who had white fragility going. Exactly. <laughs> Yes, I like so that. So, did you word. find yourself having to sort of advocate for people of color back in the nineties? Yeah, I mean, that's all my research has ever been on. Is you know, I I've never academically you know looked into any other subject um, except you know racism and social class issues and how those are related and and police brutality and. Pro, you know, racial profiling, that's always been my passion of research. And I'm also at HBCU right now. I teach at Tennessee State University in Nashville. So, you know, I'm, 
I say I preach to the choir now, you know, compared to when I used to teach out in Southern California. But Wait, so you're saying preach to the choir now in Tennessee compared to Southern California? Are you saying that? Um, at a HBCU, a historically black college and university. Oh, okay. Right, okay, right, right. Okay. No, oh, not Tennessee. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was wondering. Oh, no, no, no. Tennessee. Right. I was feeling slighted for the Southern California. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, I didn't teach at, you know, a university that was, um, it was a private liberal arts college. We'll just say that. So teaching to that group, the issues of, you know, social class and race and, and political and economic issues in our country was a little more challenging than when I went to an HBCU. We'll just put it that way. So, as an academic teacher, um, obviously the people you're teaching are well aware that racism is alive and well. What are you teaching them? Um, well, I mean, I, I teach them some of the statistics that are out there that they can support. You know, if they want to go out and talk about how racism impacts them, they actually have you know, the facts, they have the statistics, they have the research, they can, they can actually say, hey, but, you know, if one in seven of us are in prison for, you know, nonviolent drug offenses, this is a problem. You know, when you look at whites, and it's one in, you know, 20 something, there's a huge disparity there. So, you know, as much as they know, and they can feel it now, they I feel like I'm giving them the tools to vocalize it in a more um, academic found with a more academic foundation. Right. So it's grounded information. They're going in research, in the right. right. With statistics and research. Okay. The other thing that caught my interest is this new book you have out also has poetry as a part of what you did. So you're a poet as well. Well, this is my first publication um, in poetry. So I just, I used to dabble in it years and years ago. How many, yeah. like before? Oh, in my, in my 20s. Yeah. Um, and I just got, I just got back into it a few years ago and, and I loved it so much that I just kept writing more and more poems to the point where I had enough to, to really put something together in a book. Was there any personal challenge in going from that academic brain back over to the creative? Actually, I think the, what I had up here from my you know years of academic research and teaching help me put together pieces that are poetic, but yet also um, have a voice, will we'll give voice to people who are oppressed or, you know, they can't, I feel like I can talk to groups of people that have been oppressed over the years, politically, economically, racially, um, because I know I can feel that, like I have their passion, you know, I feel, I feel empathy for them. I, I have the passion to get the word out of how they're being treated. And that's what I was saying about short rage is, you know, I felt like I can feel, I'm very empathetic. So I can feel them just through my own experiences. I feel for people. And I think that's what was different about writing poetry is I can actually put my own emotion into it, but I still had intellectually, um, information that I could put it in a in a way that um, was not just emotion, right? It was supported by things that have happened. Have you experienced people hearing and 
your poetry with that a level of potency? Have you witnessed anyone's you know reaction to it? Not really. I've done a few poetry readings, but again, I feel like the people who came to my poetry readings were on the same page, you know. So, yeah, I haven't really um, heard back from anybody that's read it that's like not liked it or said anything negative about it. Although there's well, a lot that's in there that people could, you know, get very upset about. Well, I was actually thinking more along the lines of what I would call an emotional impact that was transformative or enlightening oh, or oh, awakening oh. as opposed to, you know, sort of negative. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I've had several people tell me how much it's touched, you know, them and helped them and, and even helped them heal over some things that they didn't, you know, that they didn't want to talk about, but because I did, they felt comfortable talking about it. And so, yeah. This- this brings up an important point, which is the, the recognition that for people in who are of color to talk about these things is re-traumatizing to them. And that one of the most important aspects of bringing forth awareness around these issues and the prevalence of them in our culture is that it, there's an element of that that has to be done by people who identify as white or if we're going to write, it's important for men to talk about sexism against women and for white people to talk about the, um, you know, legacy of racism and slavery in our country. Do you agree? Yes, absolutely. And and that brings me to you were talking about, you know, people having an emotional response and a positive one. I remember reading one of my poems at a poetry reading and one of the um, one of the African-American women that was in the poetry reading literally said, you just let me be aware that there are whites that are on our side that understand us. And she was literally like, you could see that visually she just really didn't know that there were people like me out there that would write about, you know, her, something that she would experience in her pain. So, yeah. Yeah. When I hear the term blue eyed devil, I understand there's a reason that term exists. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think part of what I hear Mark and you both saying is there's a responsibility we have as a privileged race to stand in the fire and anger that exists, and it's a righteous fire. Right. And, you know, a lot of the changes of the 60s, I'm not saying that it could have happened with just African Americans, but when everybody joined together in protest is when the most progress was made. So, yeah, we need to make sure that we are, we're all in this together. You know, we're all trying to sur- survive the inequities, the challenges of this world together. Yes. I'm wondering, and this may not be the appropriate time, but would you be willing to read one of the short poems you have? That- oh, one of the short poems. Okay, because most of my poems are kind of long, but um, I'll see if I can find a shorter one. Um. Okay, this one's called Climate Change. It's pretty short. You are so hot you make liquid reach its boiling point, distorting my view with your rising steam. Your heat burns me like the hot sun in a clear sky, beating down on me, your humidity's high. SPF 50 cannot protect me from your cancerous rays. I still have scars from where your boiling water burned my face, but still I stay You are so cold you turn water into a glacial mass. The one soft spot you left open for me to fall through, knowing I would follow you. 
You led me to that place, quietly watching me gasp for air, hoping I would never escape. Quivering with anticipation as you govern the time of my death, standing above me on the ice, watching me beg, but still I stay. Your winds are gentle and soft like a light ocean breeze. You give me relief from the sweltering heat of the day. Make me let down my guard as if I am safe. But then your winds pick up as your clouds turn dark gray. You hit me with the force of a hurricane. All I own caved in on me as I sheltered in place. But still I stayed. I know I must leave if I am to maintain my sanity. I know I must leave to protect what little I have left of me. I know I must go if I am ever to be free. I know I must leave to shed your definition of me. I know I must leave to find out who I was meant to be. That's very, very powerful. Thank you. Welcome. Well, thank you for sharing that. Do you want to um, find some light on the origin of that and the character's identity at all? Or do you want to leave it just for interpretation through the art? I think it's just a few things of just constantly. It was more about. Uh, I'll just say what. It's just like being in the United States at the time during the Trump administration was, was the origin of that. I just, you know, it's like I want to leave. You know, I just, I got it. Like I just was so stressed being in this country at that time. So it's really about why I'm staying in this country with all the ugliness that was going on. Right. It's so hard when, as we begin to understand more and more the crimes against humanity that are part of the formation of this culture and this mm -hmm. nation. And then people who double down on their identity in order to avoid having the experience of recognition of what it is that we're all complicit in. Right. So it's one of the hardest things to integrate and to accept about people like Donald Trump is their seeming inability to recognize the human cost of their attitude. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So what's one of the long ones? <laughs> would you like me to read a long one i would sure. love for you to have the opportunity to read okay. a long one this yeah, one's kind of long but it's i think it's the one that sums up the book nicely Great. Um, so don't a, rush take your time i will it's called exposure of a cast i watched as racism rushed out of you like blood from a deep cut I could see bloodstains on your hands and regalia as you chose white privilege over democracy that night. You think your white skin is translucent, but it is clear what lies inside. Detestation and fury for any person of color that proves, even with your exploitation and alienation, they still can rise. Governing with your fake crown protesting you are deserving. You proclaim you fought hard for your high rank in the oligarchy. Who are you kidding? Your words are your worth was ascribed, not earned. You were born into wealth. Yours is not a story of rags to riches. Only your arrogance allows you to believe that is the truth. You are frustrated when you are dismissed by someone of a lower caste, infuriated when a black or brown brother or sister passes you in the ranks. You have justified in your mind it's okay to call blacks and browns criminals and illegals, pronouncing your superiority 
while them you belittle. Lock them up and throw away the key, you say. I have no use for them. Shoot them, starve them, enslave them, take their rights away. No longer off my tax dollars will their children be nourished. Why should my hard-earned money be given to them with the expectation that they will flourish? Continue to live with that blindfold over your eyes. Preach your creed about how this country was pledged to people like you. Bestowed upon the pale-skinned under the assumption of the manifest destiny. This allows you to be deliberately obtuse about the damage you cause others with your brutality and gluttony. Keep kids in cages so that your children don't have to compete. This only benefits you, but white privilege you can't see. You wear your tainted sacred thread like an honor badge, telling everyone your war stories about how you labored to get everything you have. You speak with righteous indignation to your MAGA hat-wearing crowds, brainwashing your followers into believing you are bringing America back to that nation it once was when only people that looked like you were worshipped, respected, and deserved to be treated like royalty, demanding your believers charge the White House, ordering them to kill anyone who demonstrated their disloyalty on Capitol Hill, convincing your henchmen that blacks and browns are replacing them, and soon whites will be placed dead last in the caste ranks. You recruit your ignorant to wage wars to eliminate the threat of having to live in a world where your white skin is seen as repulsive, dangerous, and no longer of any worth. You quake at the thought of not having any value in this newly colored world. You will be dethroned and forced to see that you are never worthy. I see that smirk on your face as you push that wheelbarrow of generational wealth down the street, piled so high with things you claimed you earned, while exploiting, raping, robbing, lynching, beating, and brutally murdering blacks and browns so that you could continue to keep your place of sovereignty. You are burning books so you never have to speak about the past apologetically, hoping your children and grandchildren never see the truth. The grand finale is soon to come when you become accustomed to disregard, and your work will be devalued. Serving the regal should be done without financial reward. Your schools will be lined with police acting as Department of Correction Guards, preparing you for your future in the prison yard. For your white skin will be viewed as a peril. You will count, we will count your young to predict how many prison beds will be needed in the coming decade. We must lock away your young adults before they revolt against the cruelty. We must incarcerate your youth before self-repugnance and killing become commonality. No books to read, for we the people have determined that education is lost on you. No food to eat unless you beg. Free lunch comes with the loss of dignity. Once the revolution is over and we take one last knee, you will be forced to beg for favors from people you lynched, burned, and left in poverty. Good luck with the future once your new destiny is discerned. There is no returning for those bridges you have already burned. I love the piece in there about Becoming accustomed to, I forget the words you use. Disregard, yeah. Right, right. And one of the things, Mark introduced me to a woman in Los Angeles who's doing a um, awareness of racism for people identifying as white. And uh, I loved that she brought to light that I am racist just as a child growing up in an alcoholic family would have elements of that psychology in them. 
I grew up privileged in a racist society, so I have that psychology in me. So that just really resonates with me because I think it's an easy step for us white people to do, to have total disregard. As my little sister said, we have the privilege to walk away from the issue. Mm-hmm. Right. We don't have to face it dead on every day. Absolutely. Right. right. Well, we do actually. Well, right. yeah, we, well yeah, we do. We do. <laughs> but, <laughs> and just, I'm, I'm not negating what you said, but right. it's like to one of the things that your poetry is doing, and I think you as a human being are doing, is you're making fewer avenues of escape because when you turn towards this podcast, you turn towards your work, both as an artist as an, and as an educator, there's one less path to walk blindly into the moment with. There's something else that I feel is informing your perspective. Like I heard such anger in, in that, like there's like, I could see you shaking finger as you wrote it, wrote, read it, even though you're not really, you weren't really shaking your finger. Right, right, right. <laughs> and that emotion of outrage is really important. And I'm wondering if you have trauma in your life that you'd like to speak about. Because I can feel uh, that. Yeah, the, the second chapter was really hard for me to write. And, and that's why the book's called exposed really i i not only expose some of the problems politically economically that we have in this country but i also expose some of the things that we have as um, problems that we have as far as gender relations and um how that leads sometimes to women being victimized um assaulted raped and um i was a victim when of rape when i was younger and um i think you know i just I think that does, you know, make me also, I keep coming back to having empathy for people, but I mean, I just, I feel so much when I see people being treated wrong or disrespected or disregarded or are dismissed as having any value, it, it does anger me, whether it's yeah. pers- to me personally or outside of me, but just watching other people treat people wrong <laughs> is, um, yeah, it's very discerning to me. And it's I important hear... to recognize that one in four women or slightly more are victims of sexual abuse. Yeah. Um, I think that stat is for women that's, are, I'm pretty sure it's women who are like 18 to 24. It might be a larger window than that. But yeah, that one in four absolutely have been a victim. You know, at that, at that age, they're more likely to be victims, 18 to 24, but... Yeah. Is this the right moment to transition? Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, but especially on college campuses too. I mean, it's a, it's a real problem on college campuses. Did you see that movie? Um, Oh shoot. It's about the woman who, um, Oh gosh, darn it. I can't remember. Well, her best friend commits suicide and was raped in college. And, uh, it's like an excellent woman or something like that. No, I haven't seen that. Oh, it's so, so I'm going to have to watch that. Good. I will get you the name of it. Okay. Because the woman who made the film, I felt 
did a beautiful job. It's a very powerful statement. Um, and part of what she's bringing up is like the, uh, this one scene involves the dean of women at a college where the incident took place and this sort of dismissive element, like the dean saying, well, we can't, you know, we, we can't believe everyone. Or there's this element of why should we believe you instead of him? We got to believe you both. Anyway, mm-hmm. it was very well done. Yeah, women get re-victimized over and over. You know, if they do actually come out and say, you know, I was assaulted, that's when the re-victimization just starts all over again. Yeah, that brings up as a male, I think there's my responsibility of mastering my titillation of bodies. And, you know, there's, there's a joy in sensuality and it doesn't mean there's an action required in that, what I'm feeling, mm-hmm. which I guess is an ongoing <laughs> lesson. Well, one of the sort of the top level contexts that I think is present in this conversation is the role of capitalism and advertising in the way that we are manipulated. And this context of economic activity driving us into these states of being where we are triggered and and conditioned to respond from those unconscious places in order to provide a purchasing mechanism for products. So, you know, I'm not justifying anything with this, but I am saying one of the things that men face is this constant onslaught of their their visual cortex with sexualized images and Mm -hmm. the stimulus that they uh, are in, you know, conditioned to have as a result. And we do a terrible job of teaching young men how to be in relationship to their endocrine system and their, their hormonal system. And what we do to create a way that feels whole and within nature to respond to the natural attractiveness when we're constantly being bombarded with these things that want to exploit our impulses and drive us towards behaviors that are ungoverned and, you know, impulse control, like the dopamine you get from social media, the way that women's bodies are leveraged to stimulate men, to take economic activity. None of that's anything of an excuse for the way that, um, you know, men are oppressing women and violating and committing violent acts against them. But it also is a context of what the greater sort of driver of a lot of this is. And we look at the roots of slavery. It's this idea of the human capital. You know, we start to actually, one of the reasons people don't want to have the conversation about, you know, critical race theory is because it begins to point at a part of our culture that even as horrible as rape and slavery and racism are, there's this other thing, which is genocide and murder for money. It's at the mm-hmm. cultural root of our society. And it, it's so cognitively dissonant for people to start to look at that because we are so identified with our jobs and our livelihoods and our safety is all wrapped up in this system. And they've just wrapped us in this really tight bondage around this. And the only way to unwind it is to actually start to have the conversations and find the mutual levels at which we are all being driven compulsively to play our roles in it. 
which is not to abdicate our own personal responsibility. We are all responsible to unpack and unlock and decolonize ourselves and, you know, unrapify a men, right? Make, not make men's natural instincts into an excuse. So it's, it's a really complicated and terrifically comp, you know, challenging conversation that we're all trying to have. And you're doing it in the academic sense, right? But your art, like Greg brought up a movie. Why? Because the emotional transmission mm-hmm. of these ideas actually brings us into a different state of the conversation. When right. we actually are, are right, the intellectual does one thing, but art does another. Right. Absolutely. Um, when I when I teach about human trafficking in my defense and control class, I actually show a short video that I have to warn my students. This is hard to watch, but you know, I can give them stats on human trafficking all day. And, but to see, you know, video footage of, you know, raiding places where there's women who are held hostage and stuff like that, that, that takes it to a whole nother level. So absolutely. Yeah. One of the important things to recognize about this is that that practice in particular was carried out by aspects of military industrial complex in this country, particularly in the um, Bosnian war. Um, there was a company called Dynecore that would traffic women into theater, into the theater so that they could then create what's called a control file, which is to get some soldiers, some high officials to be in a compromised position and then photograph them or videotape them so that they could then manipulate the policies. And that's one of the things we don't talk a lot about. It's a sort of secondary part of the Epstein case. Like it's really powerful to recognize that all these powerful men were going to this island where sex was being offered up as money. But the secondary piece is to recognize the reason for that is that intelligence agencies use that as a way to manipulate how votes go in the politics and the way that leaderships get co-opted as a result. And so it's not, it's horrific at the level we're talking about it, like as just from the level of human experience to be trafficked and for men who think it's okay to, to pay for sex in that regard. But the secondary piece is the espionage level and the way that our whole culture is being controlled by the application of capturing people in compromised positions and leveraging our leadership. It's it's so thick and deep. It's so hard to, to talk about. We don't talk about it enough. In fact, the drug war, same thing. It was the United States CIA that was driving a lot of that activity, drove those women into those gang things. And, and it's we need to talk about this stuff. We need to bring these things up and have the conversation. But people's brains shut down. The cognitive distance gets really hardcore. Like Greg's laughing right now, literally I because know. he can't hold it. Someone put a quarter in you, and you're just going on and on and on. And on. <laughs> sorry. Not no, sorry. But, no, he's – but, I mean, he's saying <laughs> what needs to be said because I did, I did an academic piece on the war on drugs um, in which, you know – it traces, you know, the CIA and, and all the political leaders positions into how, how the drugs get into the country, how they get where they get dropped, how um, different third world countries paid off their debt by allowing us to grow, you know, these substances, illegal substances in those third world countries. You know, I mean, it's a, it was. Yeah. 
you know, there's a nexus of international banking and organized mm-hmm. crime and intelligence agencies that we don't necessarily want to admit to or understand right. in this country. Exactly. Do you both think that someone like an Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos to be at that level of financial, whatever abundance that that has to be a piece of that acquirement. Maybe not directly them, but that their business that they create does interact in that manner. Um, I mean, I don't, my thoughts on, on people that have billions of dollars is that no one needs billions of dollars. And we've got so many poor people in this country. We've got billionaires. When I was younger, we thought it was like, wow, someone's a millionaire. Uh Now we've got billionaires. And who needs, like, I consider myself a democratic socialist, which I get a lot of flack for. But I really think we need to find a better way to spread the wealth and to pay people adequately for things that they produce, not just the people who own the means of production, but people who do the the producing of products themselves. Um, We just need to find a better way. And if if it comes down to making, you know, the wealthier people pay their fair share of taxes instead of finding loopholes, you know, just little things like that I think could help. And if people became economically stable – you know, a lot of this crazy stuff wouldn't happen. Women wouldn't be caught in situations where they got trafficked or, or their family. In some third world countries, their families sell these girls because they're so poor. You know, they have they have baby girls and they get to 10, 11 years old and they're selling the sex trafficking rings just so that they can survive. Um, because, you know, women are in these countries are devalued, of course, and they, you know, in a lot of ways they're devalued in our country too, but in some countries they're, you know, it's a, at a whole different level of being devalued. So I don't know. If I'm going off on a tangent. No, no, no. This is great. <laughs> but here's what I'd like to do, if you're both open to it, is bring this huge worldview to the personal. So if I'm looking a bit at your social media and from your last name, I'm believing you have a partner in your life. Yes. How you have a very high conscious level of power dynamic and freedom how do you and your partner navigate that personally with each other Um, we've been married for 35 years so we've had our challenges that you know at at this state you know we just know each other so well and like nothing surprises him that comes out of my mouth or that I write and um, you know nothing that he does can surprise me anymore but when we first got together, it was a struggle, you know, battle because he came from a very traditional family where he grew up on a farm and mom stayed in the house and cooked and him and the three brothers worked on the farm. And, you know, when we first got together, it was a little challenging to let him know that, no, I work too. And I go to graduate school and no, I'm not going to be your housemate. I'm not going to be your cook. Um, but yeah, so. Are there lessons that you have that you could share that you've gained from the experience of being in such a partnership? Just talk things out. I mean, we just, we had to sit down just like really, he had to listen and I had to listen to him so that we can understand where each other were coming from. 
because we did come from very different worlds. You know, that kind of circles right back into what Mark was eloquently and energetically saying. Um, it seems communication is the cornerstone to healing everything. Mm -hmm. And even if it's the hard conversation to have it and listen to it and say it. Right. Yeah, if we don't talk to each other, and I think that's what part of our problem is we're so um, segregated right now. You know, we've gone through this, right? We're not supposed to be a segregated country anymore, but I feel like we're becoming more segregated today than we've been since the 60s. Um, but if we're segregated, we can't we can't talk to each other. We can't know each other. We can't understand each other, where each other's coming from. What I've noticed, and again, this a bit personal, but also like I love going into the YouTube rabbit hole. And um, there's a couple of videos I've seen of gentlemen of color going to Trump rallies. And what the two videos that I have in mind right now is they were kind of surprised. Their, their interaction was very neighborly. And there was an acknowledgement. We have different viewpoints about this individual, but Everyone was neighborly to each other. And so my belief is the more we're willing to step into conversation with others, the more we'll find how close we are and that the story we have in our head that they are the other will start dissipating. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. I remember teaching ethnic and race, race and ethnic relations when I was in Southern California and the students, some of the students would come up to me after class. Well, you're saying that those are stereotypes, but, um, aren't there, aren't there some realities to these stereotypes, you know, and, you know, I know some blacks that act like this or Hispanics, this and that. And I say, well, how many Hispanics do you personally know? Or how many African-Americans do you personally know? And they say one or two. I said, are they like that? Not at all. I said, then why do you think that the other thousands, you know, millions that you don't know are like that? Because you yeah. put them in a box, you know, like it's easier just to put everybody in a box. But if you do get to know people, you don't judge them based on those narrow stereotypes that have been fed to you going back to the media um, through images in the media or, or other places. Yeah. Um. I would like to, again, if you're both willing, like before we started recording, it was brought up the term toxic masculinity and the triggering elements that that potentially has. You guys both willing to dive into that a bit? Sure. Mark wants to start. <laughs> You'd like me to start? Sure. Go ahead. Awesome. Um, well, the place I'm coming from is that recognition of work that needs to be done. And one of the things that I view in the world of men's work is this polarizing factor that we see in our culture in other ways. Oh, no. I think we lost him. I do, too. He'll be back. Okay. Yeah, he was freezing up for Which a minute here and there. Here I am. I'm back. Oh, good. Okay, good. Back yet? Yes, you're back. 
We lost you right about the polarizing. So if you yeah. Go back yeah. To that. So in men's work, um, we all, the, the men that I work with and the men that I'm in, in space with, there's this struggle between the wounds that occur in the fatherless family and the old ways of masculine identification that actually serve human endeavor, things like courage, productivity, provision. There's aspects of masculinity that are mysterious to a lot of men in Western culture, and they long for the stability that it brings their nervous system to identify with that. The secondary piece is that there's a lot of cultural conditioning and capitalist memes and structures that have been created that center men and then have resulted in patriarchy being another form of domination and um, oppression. And one of the things that has happened in the conversation around women's liberation in my life, I was born in the early 60s and I was present to it as a young man and then as a, you know, in middle age and now I'm 60 is that there's a kind of reactivity that happens. And in that conversation, we have anger and frustration uh, against patriarchy that's absolutely righteous and needed and valid, and that we need to be better at hearing that and having a way of having the conversation about that. And then there's a secondary thing, which is where men who struggle with masculinity we're trying their best to move back towards a place that is functionally valuable uh, in in you know bodies that have testosterone as the primary endocrine activity are looking for ideation something to to step into and so the term toxic masculinity is non-functional in the dialogue from that perspective because it's not actually the masculinity that's toxic. It's the other behavioral elements. So I've resolved in my life that toxic masculinity is a misnomer. It's not a real thing. And I'm not willing to state that outright in a confrontational way that negates the voices of women and what it is that they're responding to with that term, because I think that's actually a valid thing. And so the conversation I want to have is about how we change language so that we can talk about toxic behavior without making men wrong and want to be masculine. And that's where I'm coming from on it. And I'm curious about how that lands with you, Deborah, and what you what your experience is like. Yeah, I think historically masculine has meant dominance and power and support it and being the one who supports economically being physically bigger, um, having a louder voice. I know there's a lot of research that says women talk a lot more than men, but in action, no, there's a lot of research that says men talk more than women, but in actuality, um, the reality is men talk more uh, like the research supports men talk a lot more than women, but most people think that women, you know, like men, you know, women talk a lot, women are emotional, women, but there's a lot of things um, that being masculine leads to aggressive, 
you know, dominant, controlling type of behavior to make them feel like they are masculine because of the way we define masculinity. If we redefine masculinity to have some more feminine qualities as far as being compassionate, being kind, being generous, being supportive, you know, things we equate to being female and men getting a lot of times chastised for having some of these qualities, you know, being um, criticized because they're too emotional or they're too, you know, they're too supportive of their, their wife. I know, you know, for a while, my not taking my husband's last name, um, you know, hyphenating my name in the, in the eighties when I got married was not heard of. And even my father gave me pushback on that. Oh no, no, you're, you know, (laughs) <laughs> you get married, you take your husband. No, no, dad, I don't. You know, my mom was even even more traditional in that sense. So, um, but all the, like, even the taking of a man's name, you know, says patriarchy, you know, screens patriarchy. And things that we do, I don't know if this is still the case because I haven't um, been involved in adoption process or buying a house for a while. But I know when my husband and I adopted our daughter out in California, they said that his name had to go first on the adoption papers. And I'm like, why does his name have to go first? And I said, because that's just the way the paperwork's set up. And I said, well, I know I'm the one that's going to be, you know, taking care of her, coming home every night, making sure schoolwork's done, making sure she gets to school, making sure she gets fed, making sure she gets to soccer. You know, I'm the one that's going to be doing the majority of the work. And my income is as supportive of, you know, raising her as my husband's. So I'm not signing my name first or second. And they said, you know, you can play that game all you want, but if you want your daughter, you need to sign your name second. And I finally caved, but it's just those. And, and the house was the same thing. We bought, you know, we buy every time we buy a house, his name has, you know, this is the kind of stuff that I think supports, you know, men feeling like they are more powerful than women which leads to sometimes, and not a lot of times, I'm just going to say sometimes, men feel that, okay, if I'm the dominant person in the relationship, I'm the one that's supposed to be making the decisions about what you do. You know, they they become more controlling. Um, they make decisions about whether or not if you want to, you know, be involved in, you know, a sexual relationship with them, for example. You know, I bought the, you know, I bought dinner, you know, and, you know, I spent all this money on you on a date and brought you home. And now you're going to tell me that I, I have to leave, you know, without getting my reward. Cause there's almost an expectation. And I'm saying for fewer now, I think than back in the day, we'll just say that. And there's was expectations for, you know, women to, to service men in certain ways, because, Economically, they had made more money. Um, politically, they were in power. You know, all the different things that they saw um, that led to their belief that, hey, I'm in control of women. And I think that's led to a lot of relation issues relationship-wise between men and women where women become victims of domestic violence and sexual assaults and different things like that. And that's what I, you know, that's what I kind of talk about as far as toxic masculinity. That's what that means to me, toxic masculinity. Some of those male qualities that we, that we rank is that's what our men are supposed to look like and act like. And it's even, you talked about the media too. They portray those, you know, portray those masculine 
qualities that are dangerous in, you know, in the media and commercials, selling products, just like you're talking about how sex sells, um, the same thing. I hear you. I think the conversation is one of these conversations that we need to have more of because what we're really trying to do together is find our way home to being human beings. Mm -hmm. Right. And the question of masculinity for male bodies and what that's look, what that looks like. There's for me, there's kind of two delineations there. One is what I would call inherent biological response and context. Like I mentioned testosterone as, as a context for what it means to be in a mass a male body. Right. And then the secondary piece is the intellectual and sociological conditioning that is the result of patriarchy. Mm -hmm. And so my preference, if I were to be able to say what I wanted without oppressing women, right? Because uh, the danger that I'm with what I'm about to say is that it could be mansplaining, right? But I'm, I'm neutralizing that now, just being conscious of the reality of that is I would like to hear about toxic patriarchy as the term. Because there's something about masculinity that is in, an important aspirational piece for male-bodied humans. Mm-hmm. And I want to have a place for that to actually remain. What The term we're seeing in some circles is divine femininity and divine masculinity, which is this idea of the redeemed quality of that aspect. And so that's what I, I would love would, would be for us to, to have some language where we could move into spaces like that. But w- what we see is, that, you know, people who are social media stars who are pre- creating perpetuation of these powerful masculine identities coming out in resistance and calling things like third wave fez- feminism the wrong thing, et cetera, et cetera. It's another element of polarization that doesn't serve the conversation. It might be convenient. It might actually create gravity and magnetism for certain classes of people, just like Trump does. Right. Mm. Also, there's the reverse polarity for that. Right. Feminized men who want to be seen as sensitive men. And, you know, it's a very complex thing that we're involved with. Right. Oh, we lost him again. Yeah. And what I'm trying to... <clears throat> Mark, we lost you. You know, um, while well, we're waiting for him to join us. I'm back. Uh, yeah, okay, there you're back. <laughs> what I'm trying to embody in this conversation is a willingness to put forth this idea of exalted masculinity that's for men and boys to aspire to. And then also call in the impacts of patriarchy, rape culture, and toxic male behavior, right? That's mm-hmm. fostered by the system that conditions us to inhabit these roles. And just like with racism, these things have, we have got to do a way better job of exploring the nuances together right. rather than each other in boxes and polarizing conversations with he said, she said, and pointing fingers at each other. And, you know, what I'm wondering is just as, oh, no, we lost him again. My questions for you. Okay, you're back. I'm wondering, Mark, <laughs> um, if it's possible, just as you have very clearly and many times said that 
we need to take on the responsibility of healing racism because when it's on the shoulders of a person of color, it's just another trauma added to them. And I'm wondering if the term toxic masculinity could be seen through the lens of like medicine, that the right amount of medicine is healing too much and it's poison. So masculinity by itself is benign and aspects of it too much is toxic. The right amount is healing and natural. So if we were in circles of color, it would be up to the cultures that were that are identified with that lineage that come from that lineage to define the scope of that. Wait, and so, say that again. So if you're going to be talking about what is the correct level of medicine in a circle of people of color, you would not impose that from the perspective of white people defining it for people of color. You will, you would have to accept the people of color define the level of what right, it looks so, like. So, she's so what I'm saying, of- hang on, let me finish. One of the jobs of men is to redeem the label of masculinity. And in order to do that, we have to be consciously aware of the impacts of patriarchy. And the impact it ha- your definition of masculinity has on women. Well, uh, yes. And what I'm saying is that the correct definition by me oh, is okay. not toxic to women. Right. And then when we yeah. adequately define masculine energy on a spectrum, it's non-toxic. Right. And toxicity is behavioral. Right. And right? I like the patriarchy part because – some women are even, you know, when they get in positions of power within the hierarchy, they can be as bad, dangerous, and toxic as any man. I mean, uh, what's her name? Marjorie. Oh, the, oh good God. Yes. Yeah. The blonde devil. <laughs> right. I mean, give, yeah, some women that power, you know? Well, that is just a loose cannon running wild. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's the it's the cultural uh, framework that she's been raised in that makes her predatory and aggressive, right? And it's that's again that falls at the feet of capitalist so, social structures because we're we've forgotten that the competitiveness is a something someone made up. That when you actually do the biological research, you look at the sociology of different animal systems, and even Mar- um, not the the guy who wrote the. Uh, Evolutionary principles, uh, for goodness sake, I've forgotten his thing. Darwin? His name, Darwin. Darwin talks about cooperative um, animal structures way more in that research than he does about um, this idea of, you know, dominant. Right, 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 and and so we're we've forgotten that as a whole, we're much more effective cooperatively. The thing is, the power structures, the men and ugh, the men. Here we are at the top of these economic structures, leverage that cooperative foundation in service to their own enterprises, mm-hmm. and we fail to recognize that what makes quote those men more competitive is the way they leverage the cooperative nature of their workers, and. 
humanity as a whole is much better served and evolution as a whole is much better served by how we come together and create new possibilities. And in order to do that in the modern era, we're going to have to break down this language that has us being polarized and divided against each other. And that's where the crux of this lands. We are being fed this idea that we have to be in opposition to each other. And there's people leveraging that opposition to each other to continue to perpetuate a dominator control matrix over us. And both in the arenas of sexual identification, non you know, identification, you know, colors, all of those things. And this is our challenge. But Very I well. A, Very well said. A, I have a question for you, Mark, because part of what I heard with your um, experience with the term toxic masculinity, but then you very clearly are talking about how a person of color, um, they are the ones to define how terminology should be the level of terminology and communication. So isn't there, shouldn't that be extended to Deborah and other females of that term toxic masculinity? Like, isn't it our responsibility as males to stand in the fire of that term and work, do the work to transform where that's coming from. I'm not sure I get your question fully, but I'll try my best to answer it. What I'm suggesting is that men need the room to define masculinity in its whole and exalted form. And that what people who have a problem with patriarchy and males dominating and rape culture and those sorts of things, which are real problems, Using the term toxic masculinity makes it more difficult for men who are trying to exalt and redefine that term to mean something of value to cultures and societies, because it's not the masculinity that's toxic. Masculinity itself is actually something that needs to be redeemed and made whole because its context has been disrupted. And in order to restore that, one of the things I'm asking as a man is to have the term be turned into toxic patriarchy instead of masculinity, because there are many of us who want to reclaim our whole and healthy masculines. And in order to do that, we need, uh, we want to shift the terminology and that's not designed to limit or, or make it harder for people in feminine bodies to have conversations with us about it. In fact, really would like us to be able to do that together myself. And it's a, it's a process. It's not absolute. I equate what you're saying to me walking into a room of people of color and saying, I need you to change the term white racism or white privilege because I want that to be a positive. I hear you, right? I hear that. And I think being someone who has my point of view and is a male body and has wants this for myself, it's natural for me to, to advocate for that position. And there's something of, there's a, what people are trying to do with the term toxic masculinity is point things and have evolution occur. And I think that's a valid thing to want. And I support that that process goes forward and that we deconstruct elements of toxic behavior that inhabit patriarchy 
And my hope is that we can someday have a reverence for our men and women, masculine and feminine, that has it be that we no one has to feel threatened or defined by someone's trauma and their experience of a masculine person and, and fear how they're identified with that. Like men fearing how they identify with masculinity doesn't actually serve the development of men. And that's what I'm trying to bring into the space we're talking about. And it's super important that that not be a limitation on women and their experience of patriarchy and of toxic behaviors. Absolutely. We have got to do the work to dismantle the way the structures exist and how they operate in our culture, both subconsciously and consciously. And that's why I do what I do, right? In the circles that I do it. And I think Deborah's voice is a powerful voice across all of these ideas and that we need more women who can speak freely and give us their art and their intellect at a level that has them feel empowered and capable of being who they wish to be in this world. And that's what my vision of divine masculine or exalted masculinity is geared towards enabling that at the highest level. Because I want women and I want feminine beings, whatever their body is, to be able to express that energetic quality in the most creative and complete ways they can. In order to do that, I'm doing the work I can to, you know, identify areas where I still have blind spots. And this conversation, like I've been super careful because that's how we get there, right? We have to take great care with each other and listen. And and I, it's super comfortable for me that this cr- question keeps coming back to me, Greg, because we have Deborah sitting there quiet while two men talk and that's not what that's not the result we need right oh no i i think i i'm understanding where you're coming from mark and i understand where Greg's coming from as far as like if you're saying that let men have the space to identify masculinity then are you taking the females out of the equation on can we help you understand us um in the same way that, you know, you can't, you know, you can't go into, uh, you know, African-American community and say, let me define my white privilege first and rethink about that so that it's not toxic to you as people of color. And then, you know, um, then we'll get back with you. I mean, I think we just have to have the conversation, but I think it's a good start looking at and, and really deconstructing this whole concept of patriarchy and power and, because I think that's where, you know, where the damage gets done is people who are in positions of power. It's, I mean, eh, eh, not necessarily all people of power, but because sometimes people, well, let's just say people of power. There's power dynamics in people's. Right. Just There's power dynamics at, at all levels. Right. That's why I said, yeah. let's just go back to power. Um, but yeah, because it's just like the scenario, like if the father comes home and hits the wife, the wife hits the kid, the kid hits the cat. You know, it's like this level, this hierarchical level of who, you know, who gets hit first and then the domino effect of that. So if you got people at the top, you know, in positions of power and patriarchy and they're harming people at the next level, then they're harming people at the next level, you know, and it's just a continual domino effect, but. The language of violence 
is not as effective a way to construct a culture and a society and a human race as the language of love. And this is our challenge as humanity is how do we adopt new ways of being together that are more functional and having these kinds of conversations are the key to doing it. And I just, I think your devotion to your academic work and the level of output that it took for you to achieve that and the way that informed your art, I just want to honor that. That's what this whole conversation is about. And at the end of the conversation for the last 12 to 18 minutes, it's been centered on my voice. And that, I think, is important to note because the truth of this conversation for me is the recognition of your voice and the things that you brought to the table as much more valuable for me this moment than my opinions on redeeming toxic masculinity. That's part of why I didn't make it front center as as early in the conversation, because I really wanted it to be about you. Right. And, um, you know, I get why Greg brought it in because it's a hot button subject and he likes to poke Mm -hmm. the bear. And it's an important thing too to poke the bear because that's how we get to these understandings. So what I what I would like to see happen, if you're willing, Deborah, is for you to say whatever might be worth saying to, you know, put your voice back in the space. And then if we could go out with one more poem, I would love that. Are you (laughs) able to do something you feel comfortable doing? I can find one more, I'm sure. Okay. Is there um, something you need to say about this subject that we've been covering to sort of put a point on it? Um, not really. I think I think everybody everything's been said. I think it's very important both sides of us, you know, that everything gets heard. I think conversation is the key. We've just got to talk to each other and and respect each other's opinions and um yeah. That's where I'm at. Thank you. Let me see if I can find one that's not really long. I'm trying not to do that. Well, there's well, no commercial enterprise that says you have to keep it short. Like, be heard. <laughs> this is your chance. Okay. Um, okay. This one's not really personally about me, but I think it's appropriate since we were just talking about um, toxic patriarchy or toxic masculinity. But this is out of the second chapter that I was talking about that's more about, like, victimization of women and um, my own personal victimization. But this one's called, But My Babies I Must Feed. I smile and act like his sexual advances don't bother me. A little pat on the ass as he brushes up against my breast. A call to his private office to satisfy his sexual fantasies. I tell myself it will all be okay, even though the shame will never go away. But my babies I must feed. Every day when I arrive home, I immediately break down and cry. As the mirror looks back at me, I see black mascara smeared on my cheeks. As tears rush out of my eyes, along with my pride. In the mirror, I see a woman who has no self-regard. Every day it gets more challenging for me to repress the memories. But my babies I must feed. I'm getting old. My butt is starting to sag. Although I can't stand him, I need my boss to keep me around. I can write the conclusion to this story we all know so well. I will be replaced by a woman with big breasts and much younger than me, especially if she is hot and he is horny. I am so scared I can barely breathe, but my babies I must feed. I am working hard to maintain 34, 22, 34 until the end. 
and spending a ton of money on getting rid of my wrinkles, knowing that is a battle I can't win. It is only a short time before my boss will dismiss me. When the time comes, I will leave without my dignity. But I hope he doesn't dismiss me too soon. For my babies, I must feed. Recording stopped.